Well, this morning I want to uh, get into our, our series we're in. Last week we had a lot of requests for that. I haven't posted it. Talking about being bold in our generation and our culture. And um, very well received. I had a, um, there's a lot of things there. And I want to encourage you to, if you weren't here, or those online, if you weren't here, to go back online and watch it. Uh, being bold in our culture and in, in a generation that's running hard from God is really important. And, you know, I'm grateful for the fellowship we have here. It's so sweet. And I'm looking forward to tonight and the, the prayer and the worship and the food, of course. But um, next Sunday, we finally got our coffee booth. I have to put it together. It's a rolling cart. Yeah, right. Huh? We're going to start having coffee again in the foyer, right? And so, amen. And so we're going to be able to hang out. And, and I love the smell of coffee. You know, I, if you've been here very long, I don't like to drink it. I've tried it every which way, so don't try to take me to Starbucks and convince me. It's just not going to work. I, I'll be glad to sit with you. And I won't even drink the hot chocolate there. I believe it tastes like chalk, personally. But anyway... <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I, you know, I'm looking, I love the smell of it. When you walk in the foyer, it's so welcoming and everybody's talking and having a good time. That's just a great part of the church family. And we're uh, in October, we're going to get our nursery going again and begin to get that staffed for that. We need to see uh, young families with babies again in our church, amen? For a long time, we had a lot of babies. I think it was something in the water, I'm not sure, but um, nonetheless, praise God. That fellowship is important. Um, last week we talked about having, being courageous and having the courage to stand. And there's a lot of political issues that are swirling around in our generation. And we're going to be talking on what the world might call sensitive topics. We're going to be talking about sexual orientation. We're going to be talking about abortion. We're going to be talking about um, different issues with culture and the entitlement things. All from a biblical perspective, though. These are not things that are conservative or liberal. These are things that are just in the Bible. And so last week we started talking about being courageous enough to stand for the convictions of God's word. And you're being pressured, friends, all of us, in our family structures and our family members, uh, more so in the younger generation. We see this great influence in our universities and colleges of being taken away from forcing that once they get to college, more than 80% of those that grew up in church leave the church and never darken the door again. It used to be only 60% just 10 years ago, friends. Um, you're talking about an entire generation. Um, uh, nearly 80% of those born after 1989 have never even been to church. Let that soak in. That means in the next 10, 20 years, there's not going to be anybody that's even been to church attending church so and usually those that come to church come to know christ 85 percent of those come before they're 18 years old so if we do the math we're looking at another uh, decline really in spiritual intensity but friends i i believe that if the church takes a stand for what is true and right and shows the right way to live with success and peace and joy that's going to have a greater influence on this generation than all the junk they're being fed so we taking a stand in love is never wrong in love is key right and we're not gonna we don't want to get in someone's face and argue with them god wants your life and my life to be a reflection of who he is and remember the things we covered that he is last week he is holy and he is love those two things do go together 
Um, Although we're saved by grace, we're called to live a life worthy, the Bible says, of the calling we have received. All of us are called, right? Those that are called, God has chosen to become his children, right? That's one side. The other side is every person is responsible to make a choice because we have this decision that to choose Christ. So we got Calvin on one side and Arminian on the other. I don't have to explain it. All I got to do is just say God knows the rest. That we have a deliberate opportunity to tell people about Jesus through our life example. We're, we're transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit and he blesses us and will bring even more of his direction in our life as we follow him. That's the mission of this pulpit to challenge us to live loudly biblical ideas and to think biblically. If we're not being trained from the pulpit to think biblically, then the preacher has not done a good job. And we have kind of gotten off the rails in the evangelical world these days by taking only short little tidbits and principles of the Scripture and hodgepodging them together into something that will just gyrate a crowd. Friends, we don't want just that. I'm not for the show only. We need to know what we believe. We need to know the Word of God. It's very important that we have ministry that expounds the Word, that talks about the Bible, because it is the standard for life, success, and conduct in this world. Uh, The message I want to bring to us today is about a popular topic in our nation. It's called racism. But really, that's not what it is. And I'll get into what the real definition is in just a moment. But the title of this particular one for taking a stand is called, Beauty is Only Skin Deep, But Ugly Goes Straight to the Bone. Now, my dad used to say this all the time. Beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes straight to the bone. And usually it was a point of correction for me. (laughs) Something ugly in me was coming out, and he was letting me know that ugly went straight to the bone. But let's read what Paul says in Galatians 3 as he deals with the issue of uh, prejudices being shown. Look what he writes in context. Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law was a guide. The law is a a picture, really, of what Jesus was to fulfill. All the righteous requirements of what the law required, Jesus fulfilled in that. It's not that we don't embrace the spirit of the law, though. God has not changed, right? So even though um, men that are not, that are also from the tribe of Levi could get tattoos or that it is a disgrace for a man to long hair, have long hair and we have Shane in our midst, the things that were written by men in terms of putting in the law, they have a purpose, and we can embrace the spirit of the law, understanding it's, that's biblical interpretation, right? We went over this on Wednesday night. Like, we don't read the Bible literally. You should never tell someone, you believe the Bible literally. Show me a tree that claps its hands, and then I might go with you there. But we read the Bible literarily because it has historical context. It has prophetic context. It has 
uh, wisdom, it has poetic, it has letters written uh, to the epistles, it has very literal things, but also it has illustrative things through the lives and things, happenings of people that give us a picture and principles to live by. The Bible gives historically uh, how God reacts to man and how man responds to God, right? And so when we look at Scripture that way, we have a better idea and understanding of what God is trying to say. And right here in the Scripture, Paul says, hey, the law was a guardian to show you what Christ really has done in your life and for you. Is that beautiful? Now, verse number 26 says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. Beautiful. Wonderful. All sons of God through faith. For as many as of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now there's three things he talks about comparatively. He talks about, um, he talks about the Jew or Greek, that's the prejudicial thing, and there's neither slave or free, which we'll get into in the next couple weeks ahead, or nor male nor female, which we'll really get into as well in the weeks ahead. For, for there is one, for all, he says, are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to, uh, according to promise. The one that he deals with, in, first in the list, that I want to talk to us about, is there is neither Jew nor Greek. He establishes something about the significance of relationship that is very important between the two. Even though they have differences, it doesn't matter because they're one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter their differences. Uh, racism, in terms of how it's said in our culture, is sin. It is just sin. I don't think there's any way around that. Better said, prejudice is sin. Uh, we're going to define race here in a moment. The world has redefined it, and we have to go along with their definition, because when they talk about it, that's what they think but we're going to define it according to five different metrics. But there's no denying that there's racism in our world today. America has had her own sordid history, and we know what that was. And there is racism, as the world describes it, a prejudice that still exists today. And I know you've seen it, you've experienced it, maybe you've seen it or experienced it in your own family. Martin Luther King Jr. was absolutely right when he said this. I look to a day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now, we've heard that said, I'm sure you've heard that said, but that is such a beautiful biblical idea. It's a Bible idea. It's an idea that we should embrace. These are genuinely powerful words, and unfortunately, many of his words kind of have been twisted to mean something else than they did at the time. A, a quote out of context has little power, right? I hear preachers do it all the time, and it just baffles me. I mean, if I wanted to, I could ma manipulate anything that I want to out of context. His words literally mean skin color does not matter. That's all. That's all it means. But character does. And people have twisted for furthering their issue of racism uh, for political reasons, and some have used those same words to exclude and segregate people, and it has come to mean equality of outcome rather than equality of opportunity, which a, equality of opportunity is really a biblical idea. Of outcome is our own choice. 
America has, has worked hard to try to establish that equality of opportunity, equality of access. The principle that both Paul and Martin Luther King are, Jr. are making is that it doesn't matter where you come from, what the color of your skin is, the thing that unifies is Jesus, is Christ. Jesus is the answer to this thing in our world called racism. He really is, friends. We can try to make it more equitable, which is really unfair, or more equal, which is probably equal of opportunity, is fair. And we have done, make great strides to do that. The conversation and, and anger and culture continues, though, to be fired up. What does the word race then actually mean? If we were to really look at this, the, the definition of the word has been hijacked from what it really means. I get so weary and tired of people calling me white or calling someone black, calling my daughter-in-law brown. I, I don't like that necessarily. I understand when you describe somebody, you're describing uh, their, their, their skin color, but I, I mean, this is white. I mean, I mean, maybe Pete, you're close. I don't know. <laughs> but this, this, this is black, right? This is black. I mean, this, this doesn't look good. Uh, uh, Pemetric has dark skin. She doesn't, that's not black. She's not black. These are actually more typified of the color shades of our skin. We're all different colors of brown, right? We kind of get that. But there's um, some things in our culture today, and, and I want to look at some dictionary definitions. I want to look at five things, metrics. Culture, the dictionary, popular education, where it was founded from anyway, historically, the scientific method, and by God himself. When the term race is used, what does it mean? Number one, culture. Let's look at what culture defines. It's really hard to define race by the standards of culture because of the hard focus that it has on racism, which is sin. But across the spectrum, it seems most likely that race, in America anyway, is defined by the color of your skin. And there's all kinds of identifications. People in pop culture and, and music and movie stars are making this case that race is defined by the color of your skin. All kinds of identifications in our country with people groups based on how light brown or how dark brown your skin is. And the, the melanin content seems to be the defining factor in your race, which is pretty silly when you consider the actual skin color among different humans or people affected by, is affected by many different substances, including obviously melanin. It's produced in the skin called melanocytes, which uh, creates the different pigmentation color in your skin, right? And the skin color, darker skin humans and lighter skin humans. And the skin, um, the skin is not important. The color of skin is, is just the color of skin. Culture has used, though, the term race to define you by the color of your skin and the characteristics of your people group. You're, in America, you're, you're white, brown, black. Those are the predominant definitions in America. And it's really sad and sinful because you're grouped into this group by which your skin color is associated with. And I think that's terribly sad. I'm not saying that there's not... Um, terrible situations in different skin color groups where they might live together or different groups of people might uh, all grow up in a different kind of community. That, that's not saying that that, is, um, that that is not fair or unequal in either, either way. And what it is saying is just that that's just the way that it is. 
but you're not judged by God according to your skin color. Now, the dictionary puts it another way, and I use Web Merriam-Webster's definition, and one of the big definition is this, any one of the groups that humans are often divided to and based on physical traits regarded as common among the people of shared ancestry. Now, that's really, you know, a kind of an interesting definition because it associates the American euphemism use of the word race with different people groups that people grow up with. And that's kind of always what we've been taught in school, right? Um, examples, like if you're going to get employed by an employer, it says there shall be no discrimination based upon um, race. Also use the word color, right? A religious, uh, religion or, or other things. And so I find it interesting that it uses both those words there when it really the term race is defined by culture, but the word color is just color, right? It's just the color of our skin. And the 2020 census question was asked, and I don't know if you realize it, but it's you had to identify by your race. And I think that that's a t you find this on lots of applications for things. What race are you? And it asks you if you're Caucasian or black. Or, and it's like, I don't understand. You know, I guess they're trying to get a demographic based on your skin color. And, and, and it just further, I think, creates a problem. It doesn't give equalness of opportunity. They're trying, to, they're trying to produce equity of outcomes, and that's impossible because outcomes are based on people's character. Equalness of opportunity is important, though. Thirdly, popular education. This is really sad. Um, don't put the definition up yet. I want a prerequisite, you know, give it some foundation. In the 1920s, in America, a major biology textbook in public schools was called A Civic Biology by Hunter. And it was used for many years. It was published in 1914. And it was used for many years. And it said this. And I, let's read it. It might be in your outline. I don't know. At the present time, there exist upon the earth five races. Isn't that sick? Right off the get-go, that's just sick. But I want to tell you where they get it from. The highest type of all is the Caucasians, represented by the civilized white inhabitants of Europe and America. What utter nonsense and stupidity and ridiculous stuff, right? And I'll tell you where it came from. It comes directly from evolution. The theory of evolution gives hierarchy to shades of skin. And the nonsense of evolution began being taught. In fact, the article uh, that I got this from several places, but the main one, was it says, no wonder the late Stephen Jay Gould, he was a famed evolutionist at Harvard University, said in 1977, he said this, biological arguments for racism, he said this in 1977, so after this book had been used for a long time, have been increased by orders of magnitude following the acceptance of the evolutionary theory. He goes on to write, there's no doubt that Darwinian evolution has fueled prejudice. Imagine the damage done by the public schools, he writes, in the 20s and 30s as students were taught that the Caucasians were the highest race. And there's, there's several things connected to this that are interesting because he talks about a generation being indoctrinated with the evolutionary concept in the 20s, but they were the teachers in the 60s. They were the college professors. And look what happened in the 60s, right? And so those became, and more and more 
uh, these kinds of things. And he goes on and he finishes his thoughts with this. Had students been taught the correct account of history based on God's word, this is from AIG, they write this, such racist teaching that causes prejudice would have not ever happened. For the Bible, it makes uh, clear that there is only one race of humans descended from Adam. Fourthly, science. What is science? A powerful study from the university, Harvard University. I want to tell you where they got it from, but look at what they write. In their, they summarize their conclusion. In the biological and social sciences, the conscience is clear. Race is a social construct, not a biological attribute. Harvard University Graduate School of Arts and Sciences came up with this conclusion. And I just want to read some of this um, that I came across with this study because um, they, they go at length and I had to kind of pull some parts out of it. It was like four pages long. And but anyway, 2003, scientists completed the Human Genome Project. How many were familiar with this? It was like a big thing. It was on the news. There were articles about it everywhere. They completed the Human Genome Project, which is they really didn't complete it. They got it mostly done. Uh, about a third, I think, is what the stat was, finished where they mapped the human genome, which is can go to the sun and back, I think, like five times, right? And the moon and back, like 28 or what? I don't know. I forget what it's. Anyway, so the Human Genome Project, making it finally possible to examine human ancestry and genetics. Scientists have uh, since tackled topics such as human uh, migrations out of Africa and around the world and it's not just scientists who are excited about human genetics at-home ancestry kits companies like 23andMe family tree DNA and ancestry for 99 bucks a customer can receive the analysis from 23andMe indicating that they are for instance 18% Native American 65% European 6.2% African ultimately there is so much ambiguity between the races and so much variation within them that two people of European descent may be more genetically similar to an Asian person than they are to each other. <laughs> the biological and social sciences, the consensus is clear. Race is a social construct. Now take a look at this with me. Uh, these twins here. This is just a few of the pictures that I could give you. Take a look. Take a good look at the twins. Now, the ones uh, in the upper right over there, they, had, they have a, had a television interview, I think, with Oprah. They were on her show. Uh, it, it's been a couple of years since I've watched her. But it was very interesting hearing them talk, you know, because they're in England. They're from England. And in America, we have such a focus on uh, the color of skin more so than in England. They haven't even really noticed any differentiation until they visited America and it was like everything's blown out of proportion and, and, and it's because obviously the sin of slavery but other cultures throughout history have also had that sin so anyway the popular classifications of races are based chiefly on skin color and the article goes on to say just some great things so I want to read it so bear with me with one other relevant features including height eyes and hair Though these physical differences may appear on a superficial level to be very dramatic, they are determined by uh, a minute portion of the genome. We as a species have been estimated to share 99.9% .9 of our DNA with each other. The few differences that do exist reflect differences in environments, external factors, not core biology. The Harvard study goes on to say, 
despite the scientific consensus that humanity is more alike than unlike, the long history of racism is a somber reminder that throughout human history, a mere 0.1% of variation has been sufficient justification for committing all manner of discriminations and atrocities. The advances in human genetics and the evidence of negligible differences between races might be expected to halt racist arguments, but it has not. Their conclusions are all true. And that's from just a very evolutionary scientific approach. That's not even a biblical one, but what do they do? They arrive at the biblical, biblical conclusion. Math does this, biology does that. Anytime the science pursues something, they come up with a biblical conclusion. Now, what's the Bible's conclusion? Here's the Bible definition, and I give it in Larry Ellis terms. Here it is. There's only one race. It's the next slide. Here we go. Adam's race. However, there are two races of the saved and unsaved, and this is biblical. This is the two spiritual races that God talks about from Genesis all the way through the epistles. It's the two spiritual races that, that God clearly instructs in his word not to mix in marriage. In other words, when someone asks me, does the Bible deal with interracial marriage? I say, yes. The race of the saved and the race of the unsaved. And God says not to marry someone who is unsaved. And that's the, that's the biblical perspective. That's the biblical mandate. And you know, this is a tough thing. I know some of you here are married to people who are unsaved or have been. And I remember, um, oh, what was their name? Uh, when we first came to the church, uh, Sharon, um, the two people, um, she was short, he was tall, he used to be a janitor at Sound Life. What are their names? Oh, okay. <laughs> Pam, Pam, remember? Car Carl and Betty. Carl and Betty Philiber. Yeah. She prayed for him for 20 years to come to Christ. And wonderful couple. And they finally retired and they bought this big RV and stuff. And she was driving around. She scared me to death. She was driving this big, massive motorhome. And I'm like, I don't want to be on the sidewalk. But she goes, you know. <laughs> but anyway, they were just genuinely sweet. And, um, uh, he would, when we had baptisms, he would always put rubber duckies in the, baptismal he thought it was cute for some reason I don't know but he came to Christ and just really became gloriously saved he had a lot of things in his past he could I mean I don't even know if they're still living today um, but I think about that every time I see people or know people or have family members that have married somebody that's unsaved don't give up right we just still keep praying for them but the Bible does this because there is such a difference in the way God calls us to live among believers and there is those who are unbelievers. There's a devotion to God in his house and the character of God and the principles of God's word in one and in the other there's the freelance. I am my own thing or I have my own beliefs. And those, those ideals early in marriage may not have a problem but later on as, as you know and you've seen in your own family it becomes difficult. So God says that the saved race should never marry the unsaved race. And uh, biologically, there's no such thing as interracial marriage then. There's, there's only one race. And we'll get into the, the Canaanite question in weeks to come and some of those things because they directly affect the arguments that an atheistic argument gives to the church today. But nonetheless, biologically, there is no such thing as interracial marriage. 
It doesn't matter what you look like. We're all descendants of one man, the Bible says, Adam. But look at the power and the strength of, of God's word as he deals with this. Or Romans 2.11, this, this phrase is, is riddled throughout the Bible. God shows no partiality. He shows no partiality. Now, men do. And James 2.8 says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. That is the Scripture. That is what God says, that there is no partiality. The church in Antioch, for example, was, was the established church and sent out missionaries. And, and um, Paul spent a lot of time there, actually, before he was sent out. And it was the leading church where he spent a considerable amount of time learning before he went out into ministry. And one of the great teachers in the church was a man named Simeon. Now, Simeon is a, is a powerful character in Scripture and is interesting. And he was called Simeon from Niger. Now, it means black. Niger means black. So Simeon called black, and it's possible that he was from Cyrene, which would be Simeon from Cyrene, who was asked to carry the cross of Christ. Come on, connecting dots. Could have very well been the same guy. So Simeon was a black man from Africa, and having, did I use the word black? I did. From Africa, come to Antioch. It's interesting that the man, like I say, who carried the cross is, it was his name. So here is, here is this this man with darker skin among people of olive skin ministering the word of God together and there are no issues. None whatsoever. What does this all mean? Christians should stand up head and shoulders above culture on this issue. The church should stand head and shoulders treating and loving everyone the same. Secondly, you are not guilty of racism because you were born with brown, dark brown, or light brown skin. It's no wonder parents of all skin colors are raising up such arguments. If you've seen some of the YouTubes, they're angry about critical race theory being taught in their classrooms. They are yelling at school boards. You'll find YouTube riddled with these things because um, across America in certain places critical race theory is being taught and people of lighter brown skin children are being made to feel guilty just because they were born with lighter brown skin and those with darker brown skin are being taught that they are entitled more than people that look different than them even though they don't even know their great great grandfather who great 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 grand great grand three greats now it's no wonder parents of uh, of all skin colors and I, I see them and, and making these arguments and I've watched them and it's it only fuels up a fire in children that shouldn't be there this is the base culture where the public education system has taken the discipling of children both for their sexual orientation and now for this idea called racism and try to implant these things which are a contrary biblical concept if we want good government, we need to be able, as a church and as a people in our environments, to stand up for what is true in love. And thirdly, the fact remains that there is still the sin of prejudice in our world. And we as a church have a responsibility to stand up against it. And I want to tell you how we do that. Number one, the church should lead by being unified 
Unity is the key. 1 Corinthians 1.10 says, I appeal to you all, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with each other so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So here Paul gives an impassioned plea, right? He appeal, I appeal to you, brothers, that you would agree. He has to really rebuke the Corinthians. They're thick-headed. I don't know how many of you remember that when we went to the Corinthian church, it was a sick church. And yet, God still calls them believers. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? <laughs> that you can be so messed up and God still loves you? But they're messed up. And, and he says, I appeal to you guys that you would agree with each other and there would be no divisions. That there would be unity, right? So he says, you guys need to acknowledge that you were not unified. You need to understand that you're not together on this idea and that you're fighting and that the direction you're going is going to lead to disunity, which is really a bad thing. And Paul makes this plea to the whole church, not just the factions within the church, in this call to unity. You know, unity is not simply tolerance of all people, perspective, and views. This is a high pressure today. In the world today, we have this perspective that unity means we sort of get rid of all the convictions of our own distinctive that makes us uniquely Christian just so that we can get along with one another. This is my beautiful daughter-in-law, Sugar, cream sister, Nikki's sister. She is gorgeous. She's brown-skinned, right? She's darker brown than I am. And every time I see her, she's got this, she's much taller than the picture's showing. She's like, I mean, how tall is she anyway? She's probably, she's tall. How is she taller than you? Or not? She's 5'10". <laughs> she knows. She's her sister. <laughs> and, and, and she just, but the thing that, that's so amazing about her the most is she's got this beautiful spirit about her, right? She's got this amazing smile. And I am so grateful she's my daughter-in-law. It doesn't matter the color of her skin. I didn't even see that. You know, I've known her since she was, I think, 10 was 12. I mean, they were just these little cute little girls, you know? Now they're these beautiful women. In the world today, we have this perspective that we just throw out everything that makes us Christian and that we believe biblically so that we can just get along. And what happens is we elevate unity above the truth. And friends, we can't do that. We've got to be able to stand, and so doing, we're no longer operating as Jesus followers. And the, the church has done this in its preaching. If you watch much preaching online or, or on television, you'll begin to realize that in, in the charismatic world, we've done it the worst. Um, we've gotten to the place where um, there's so much pressure in different ideas of the world that we say, well, let us reread our Bibles again. You know, maybe there's some things we could compromise on. But friend, we don't need to be doing that. We need to be able to stand up the truth in love and say, I don't care what the color of your skin is. The content of your character is important. And Paul is really combative here about their issues of a lack of unity. And he, he doesn't shirk from telling them the truth or compromise about it at all. The reason he's always getting beaten up everywhere is he tells the truth. <laughs> I can't wait for the day that I'm getting beat up. You know, I can, well, I can, but anyway. 
you know, when he's at the church in Galatia, he's confronting them because there, there's an issue with circumcision. He said, those of you of the circuit, in fact, he confronts Peter, right? And, and he accused him to the face. He says, he gets his face over the issue because those who are uncircumcised, um, the those who have been circumcised are judging them. And he basically says, and I'm going to put it in the most brutal terms, I wish you men would just cut it off and go to hell. I mean, it's no wonder he doesn't get invited over for dinner. I mean, he just comes right out and says this brutal thing. And, and basically, he says the same thing to the church in Corinth. If you don't get this right, I'm going to pull the car over, and it's not going to be pretty. He does. He tells them that. He says, you're going to get this right. Unity doesn't mean that we tolerate sin, that we tolerate error, that we tolerate false teaching, that we tolerate immoral conduct. That is just not simply what unity means. And when most people in our nation hear unity, they just in here embrace everyone, all perspectives, all moralities, all lifestyles, all religions. That is not what Paul is talking about. Remind years ago after September 11th, and there was a big unity prayer meeting, and Oprah had gathered a Muslim um cleric and, and a Catholic priest and invited uh, Bill Bright had already died from Campus Crusade for Christ but invited the I forgot his name and they went into the pre-meeting before they were in this football stadium right I mean, you remember the images on television and they were having this joint prayer meeting and the Campus Crusade for Christ went in there and, and he told us about this on a video thing that we went to he said when we went into the meeting they told us that I couldn't use the name of Jesus in my prayer so he withdrew I applaud that. See, that's taking a stand in love. You know, I respect what you're trying to accomplish here. I do. But that in my faith is not something I am willing to compromise. So embracing all lifestyles and everything is not what Paul talks about, right? He's a man who fights for the truth and defends the truth. It's not going to compromise his convictions about Jesus, and he's not going to do that. And he, he is telling the church that they need to be unified, not in spite of the truth, but around the truth, to take a stand. Unity is much more than tolerances of all views. Unity does not mean uniformity. Unity doesn't mean that we all need to be the same and march to the same drum. If you go into a church and they all have the same clothes on, look the same, have uh, the same haircut, where, you know, you're in a cult, you're in Jonestown, right? Get out! Um, wouldn't it freak you out if all of you, you know, had a haircut like uh, Rob's? I mean, might be a little... Well, Rob has a normal haircut, but somebody like me, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Who could I pick on? I'm just looking around the room. but I, uh, Oh, uh, Todd, he, he's raising his hand. Pick me, pastor. Make me the brunt of your joke today. Okay, all right. And we all had hair like Todd. He said, dude, after every statement. You know that. <laughs> it doesn't mean uniformity, right? Unity doesn't mean uniformity. Uh, maybe it's even weirder if we... Everybody looked like me. Admittedly, it would be a good-looking crowd, but that would be a little weird, right? That would be a time there, maybe that we were close to that at one point, and I'm glad that we're not anymore. But uniformity, just because we're together and we believe these principles, doesn't mean we have to conform our ways and march to the beat of the drum of everyone else. This is where the church has come, and I've, I've said this before, but I, I just got to say it again. A counterculture is like a rock band. 
A countercult, uh, a subculture, I should say, is like a rock band, or like Black Lives Matter, or, or things like that. That is a subculture. The church is not called to just be a subculture. It's called to be a counterculture. We have a certain set of distinctives and beliefs that are protected in America by a constitution whereby we boldly proclaim these things. And I'm grateful for that. We have a freedom here, even more freedom than some countries to sin. For example, in Kenya, it's still against the law to, can, to be a homosexual or to carry out homosexual acts. You can be thrown in prison if you do. There are some countries like that. Uh, I think Uganda is the same way. Uh, Malawi, some of those countries. They, in fact, they kicked President Obama out years ago for wanting to give them money. And they, he said, as long as you accept some of our social policies. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. Kind of proud of them, actually. Being in unity is not uniformity. Unity is the fruit of love, mercy, and grace. Unity is the fruit of love, mercy, and grace. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. That doesn't mean just if your house is clean. <laughs> and that's not all of what hospitality means either, right? It says in verse 10, each one of you should use whatever gift he has to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. That's the work of the ministry. Love one another deeply. Why? Because it covers over a multitude of sins. Covers over. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that over the years, I've been such a mess up. And I'm so grateful that early on, Abundant Life was a military church. 70% military at times because people moved a lot. And I didn't have to leave. I just could mess up and keep messing up and I get it right. Get a little more right than I have, you know, maybe lately. I don't know. Perhaps the greatest witness in the world, and Jesus says this, is our unity. Right? Is our unity. Disunity is dangerous. And, and let me say hated. Let me put, let's put this in biblical perspective. Disunity is such a disgrace to God. Look at what he says in Proverbs 6, 16. You know this scripture well. It goes from head to toe, right? This is how you can memorize. This is this week's. Last week was Romans 5, 3 to 5. Did you get that one? Here it's Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. This is a memorization scripture for you this week. If you can memorize this scripture, you've done it. And it's easy to remember. It's got some motions you can learn if you're trying to teach us the children. These six things does the Lord hate. These seven are an abomination. Starts high. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands. Anybody can do this right here. Hands that shed innocent blood, and it goes further down. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift to running to evil. Now look at these last two. A false witness who speaks out lies. That's disunity, right? But the, the last one. And one who sows discord among the brethren. Now wait. Go back. Seven are an abomination to God. Six he hates, but the seventh is an abomination. He who sows discord among brethren. I don't want to be that guy. You know why? 
because it says, what? God hates. Now just, wait a minute. God hate people? We're afraid to answer. But wait a minute. Apparently. Why do you, what do you do when you read God saying he sought to kill Moses? Right? Now, hold on with me for a moment. God killed the wicked in the world. Right? Through the flood. What do we do to quantify that with the common message of the church today? God killed Ur and Onan, two of Judah's sons, because of their rebellion. I, the Lord, do not change. God even legislates death penalty for those who violate certain laws. Like breaking the Sabbath, for example. Remember the guy that went out and picked up firewood on the Sabbath? And it happened, and, and, and Moses doesn't know what to do. He's like, he broke the law. At first, he's like, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? He actually had to go to God and ask God what to do because he's like, the law says to kill him. Are we really supposed to do that? So they stoned him. I wonder how many people picked up sticks on the Sabbath after that. You see, there's a reason. There's a reason that God always does these things. And when we get into the, the next one next week about slavery and men and women, we're going to take a look at some of the hard questions. But look at Psalm 5, verse 5. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. Doesn't go with my theology, Pastor. It's kind of messing with my brain. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord. Well, Pastor, that's Old Testament. Psalm 11:5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Kind of makes me not want to play Grand Theft Auto. Leviticus chapter 20. In verse 23, Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations which I will drive out before you, for they do all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hosea 9.15 All their evil is at Gilgal. Indeed, I came to hate them there. Because of the wickedness of their deeds and drive them out of my house, I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. All of these statements from all of these scriptures talk about a disunity. And God says that he hates disunity so badly among his people. He hates them. Now he still died for them. He still extends grace to them. He still loves them in spite of his feelings of hate because the Bible says God feels. I don't have to try to qualify it. All I have to do is believe it. Are these verses hard to read? Maybe they make us squirm or feel uncomfortable, and they should because God hates sin. But he doesn't punish sin. He doesn't throw sin up in, on the cross. He throws Jesus on the cross. God doesn't punish sin. He punishes sinners. He punishes people who 
run away. This is not easy to hear, but friends, this is part of the grace gospel. The fact that people are sinning in this world, unbeknownst, sins of omission, sins of commission, and they're doing all these things and living their own life without recognizing the Savior of the world, Jesus, who loves them and wants to pull them from this wretched, wicked, awful place. And we're wandering around in ignorance because the church has quit preaching the Word of God. We don't understand this. We're taught everything else in our culture about, about race and equity. And, and we're taught about uh, 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 sexual orientation. We're taught about uh, premarital sex. In fact, we're talking about all these things. And, and we're opening it up so perfectly. And we're letting the culture just run rampant and indoctrinate us and teach us. It's in our news. It's on our television. And we were watching a, a, a Disney show the other night. And, and a man and woman went into the bedroom finally. And they closed the door. And they're not even married. And, and it was left there just left hanging and you kind of get the image of the rest and it's just accepted it's a general sense to see this is not Ricky and Lucy God hates sin but he punishes sinners and sin cannot be tied up and thrown into a fire it can't be put on a stick or glued to a box it's rebellion it's rebellion at the heart it's it's breaking God's law sin occurs inside the heart and the mind of people and God has to punish the sinner why because he is holy and just and the person who sins the Bible says offends God I'm not going to change who God is just because I don't like that fact I have to realize that he is who he is and he loves me in this world filled with all this wickedness. And among the worst of those, the Bible says that God hates, are those who are in disunity. Prejudice is disunity. Unity is a fruit of maturity. Final thing here. Beauty is only skin deep, but ugly goes straight to the bone. Unity is the fruit of maturity. He tells them that they're acting like children. Paul does. He says, quit squabbling, fighting over craziness. Who's following Paul anyway? Aren't we all following Christ? Later, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Then later in verse four, chapter 14, and verse 20, he says, Stop thinking like children in regard to evil be infants, but in your thinking be adults. He says maturity in learning and knowing the word of God in fellowship with believers produces unity. Unity is the fruit of maturity. When we become growing in Christ, we will become more unified, able to push aside the things that make us different. Deference is a great quality among God's people, right? There are things that are different among us that are, that are open-handed things that we love about each other. Pam is way different than me, praise God. She's more perfect than I am. But that difference is celebrated, especially the color of our skin. Unity is the antidote to prejudice. The church should lead in this regard.